Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, I would love for you to turn to the book of Titus, chapter 2. We're going to continue through this book, hopefully be done somewhere in December. But it's a wonderful book. But it's a convicting book, okay? Um, and this morning it's going to be, probably hit a little closer to home for all of us. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. What separates a Christian, a true follower of Jesus Christ, from all other people? Is it our actions? Is it our words? Is it the fact that we come to church on Sunday? Is it the fact that we give to our church? Besides faith in Jesus Christ, what possibly separates us? Well, the most obvious thing that's, that truly separates Christians from the rest of the world, even other religious people, is selflessness. Giving up of yourself. Jesus made it very clear when he said, if you want to follow me, you have to deny, deny yourself. Deny what you want. That trait speaks volumes for our faith. And so this letter that, that Paul has written to Titus, who is on the island of Crete, he's wrote it both to Titus and the church, gives much information on how a church should be structured, but also how a church should live, how a church should be seen. So at, Paul has spoken in verses 10 through 16 of chapter 1, he spoke about deceptive teachers coming, people that are coming to deceive, people that are already deceiving, teaching error. But after that, now he calls the church to live out the power of the gospel. Listen to what he says here. Follow along as I read chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. But you, Titus, are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible, and sound in faith, love, and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind, and in submission to their husbands so that God's word will not be slandered. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. Slaves are to submit to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God, our Savior, in everything. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> I thank you for these words because I know you gave them to us to make us better, to make our life fuller, to make our hope more real to us, and also to make the message more real to the world. So use this now, Father, to search in our own hearts, to seek things out in our lives that we may need to correct, but also to keep us focused on the real reason we're here, to carry the gospel to the rest of the world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So the central focus of these verses really is, is Paul's trying to counter the deceptive teachings, and so he's urging Titus to teach behavior that glorifies God and glorifies his message. 
And so for the sermon focus this morning, we're going to look at, as believers, we are going to look at this. We are called, we are called to live out our faith in Christ-like behaviors to show the power of God's message. That's what we're going to kind of focus on this morning. So how can we demonstrate the gospel's life-changing power? Well, I'm glad you asked. Faith in Christ qualifies us, all of us, to show the purpose of the message of Christ in two particular ways in this passage. First, our godly conduct, how we behave, how we act. Verses 1 through 10. I'm not going to read this again, but I am going to point to it as we go through it. So in verses 1 and verse 7, Paul is calling Titus to proclaim and teach sound truths, okay? Healthy doctrines. That's what the word really means. Healthy, grounded. So then Paul gives Titus an almost exhaustive list of things he should teach. It's pretty nice when someone hands you a list of things to teach or hands you a speech already written. An exhaustive list of what God seeks for his children. Sometimes we turn this around and we think God's always expecting us to live up to his standard, which he is, but he's, he's doing it for us. So he has given us an exhaustive list of what God is seeking for us. And Paul breaks these behaviors into five different groups. Four of them are by age and gender, and one of them is by vocation. And Paul gives this list in many of his letters. This is not just the only list. You can find other lists like this of how to behave, but... This one's pretty exhaustive. God gives us, so he, Paul, Paul has written these before, so God has written these for us, okay? So let's make sure we understand. This isn't Paul putting his own ideas out there. This is God, and he's talking to us, and he's telling us this is how you should behave. Most of these apply across all of those categories. So don't just listen to your category if you fall into any of these categories, which you all do, Okay? It should be our life goal to perfect these things in our life, okay? It should be our life goal to pursue these things. So we need to understand all five categories and what he calls them to do. So first, older men. Older men, be self-controlled, dignified, sensible, strong in your faith, love, and endurance in Christ. This sounds a lot like the qualifications of an elder, doesn't it? Or a deacon. That's because it's just Christian behavior. That's the same thing. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, well, I'm not an old man. Who are you calling old, right? Well, let's try to define that a little bit so I can help you out. Men who should be leading, guiding, and secure in their life. That's, that would be an older man, a mature man, okay? You're mature in your vocation, your, your marriage. Your children may be grown and out of the house. Uh, maybe not out of the house, but your children are probably grown. And you're, you're mature in who you are. Your life choices have been made, and you're comfortable with them. You're secure in them. You don't doubt yourself. And so those kind of men should be seeking to live out these aspects of their life, self-controlled, dignified, sensible, strong, and faith, love, and endurance. That's what an older man should be living out, seeking to have these things in his life in any way he can, growing into these things. And if you're not there, you still can be there. So... Hopefully you know who you are if you're an older man. This isn't just about age. Next, older women. I'll let y'all figure that one out. They're to be reverent. They're to be reverent in behavior, he says. So let me define this word a little broader and, may, and spread it out for you a little bit. It is to behave with proper demeanor 
based on your inner disposition in Christ. I know that's a long definition. Sounds like it came out of Webster's, but it didn't. It came out of a Greek lexicon. Let me say that again for you. Reverence means to behave with proper demeanor based on inner disposition, your inner disposition in Christ. As a believer in Jesus Christ, older women need to be reverent. So Paul gives you, right here, <clears throat> some non-reverent actions and some reverent actions. First of all, slandering is a non-reverent action. Don't slander. Don't be enslaved by addictions. Much wine, he says here, but don't be enslaved by addictions. Don't be unloving. Don't be non-submissive to your husband. Those are non-reverent actions that he's talking about. Then he gives some reverent actions that older women should be doing. Teach good life choices to younger women or to anybody, really. Grandchildren, whatever. Encourage younger women to live godly, self-controlled lives. So these are some reverent actions they should be doing. Which leads us right into the next category, younger women. I'll let y'all figure out that one too. She should love her husband and her children. That is harder than it seems, folks, okay? So it's harder than it seems, but it, it, it is a command of God to love your husband and your children, to be self-disciplined, to have a pure heart, to be homemakers. I mean, he's really saying that right here, to be a homemaker, to be kind, to submit to a husband's leadership, to make your home life a priority. Now, that's not saying you all have to get married if you're not married, okay? That's not what this is saying. Back then, it was pretty much an expected thing for women to get married. But let me tell you, God blesses a woman who spends her time making her home a home. All right? I know God does. And by the way, older women, y'all should be doing these things too, okay? Because you can't teach them unless you've done them, right? Okay, so you don't think that, well, you know, we just got to teach it. We just got to tell somebody. No, no, no. Live it. You got to live it out. It's got to be an example. I hope you hear me on that. Next category, younger men. And I know you're going to think they get, the short, they get the short list, but I'm telling you, this is going to be a hard one. They should be following the righteous examples of older men. So older men, you need to find younger men and see if you can help encourage them along. Don't wait for them to come to you. Go help them. But younger men, most of all, they must be self-controlled. And if you've ever been a younger man, you know how hard that is. That is very difficult. To be self-controlled, to be self-disciplined, to be self-regulated. It is very hard for young men to be that way. Listen, as a young man matures, if he can control, listen, if, if he can control his passions, his attentions, his commitments, whew, he wins a lot of other struggles that he might have. If he can control those things. As a young man grows and matures, he needs to learn that. It will help him in the long run. And older men, we need to help them do that. Which means you need to be doing it too. So, get a clue. Paul uses Titus now. He actually takes a break here and talks to Titus again. But he's using Titus as a younger man. Basically pointing out and calls him to set an example of good works. You know, when... One of the things I thought of this week is until you get self-controlled, all these other traits, they're really hard to master without self-control. They're nearly impossible. And most likely, if you're looking like you have mastered them without self-control, it's probably hypocritical. So, he wants Titus to display integrity 
and, and, and dignity in his teaching, to make solid and serious the truth of Christ. This is something that's very important to Paul, very important to God, is that the teaching of his word be very solid, very grounded in his word, not in your speculations or your ideas or your fantasies. That's important to God. The last category, the last category that Paul calls to proper conduct is slaves. Slaves. Yes, those who are owned by other people. I know we, we all shiver at that, but that was going on. And as we learned looking at, in 1 Timothy, we learned the fact that slaves were treated a lot better and a lot differently than what we picture as the slaves that, the slavery that ignited the Civil War in our country. <clears throat> but they're still slaves. So, God, if God saved them, then God intended for them to live out their faith in that place until they could somehow obtain their freedom. Paul writes in another place that if you can get your freedom, great, go ahead. But don't do it against God's moral law. In other words, don't run away. God saved them right there. God wants them right there. And he may want them to change later and he may provide the opportunity. So the first thing Paul says to him is submit to your master. Submit to your master. Well, that seems easy enough, especially if you're a slave. But it's more like obey the boss, okay? Don't just give in because he's got power over you. Obey him in everything that does not obviously violate God's moral law, okay? So it doesn't mean you get to do all the negative stuff he does and, and, and exonerate yourself by saying it was his fault, you know? God wants you to live out his moral law in that place as a slave. So work and live as to please the master in your work. This starts by not being argumentative. He says, no, don't talk back. Stop giving lip service or debating his directions or instructions. Obviously, if you need to have a conversation with, with him, have a conversation if he's open to that. But to stop mocking and being disrespectful in your speech. That's really what he's asking them. Don't steal. Another, another translation used the word pilfer, which I, I love a lot more because I know that sometimes at our jobs, we tend to want to pilfer. We tend to want to slip something in our pocket, even if it's an ink pen. Sometimes we get a little carried away with that. Don't pilfer. Don't pocket items from the master. Don't, even if you think you deserve it. Go ask permission. There's nothing wrong with asking for permission. Don't steal it. Respect the boss. At least if you can't respect the person, respect the position. It'll carry you a long way, trust me. Be faithful to the truth of salvation. Be faithful to the truth of salvation. That's what Paul wants these slaves to do while they're in this bondage. Be faithful, utterly faithful to the truth of the salvation. Because see, even a slave is changed to live differently no matter what his situation is, no matter what his conditions are. Utter faithfulness, sold out to live like Jesus. He's calling slaves to do that. Right there in, in, the, in verse 9 and 10. Live like Jesus. That's what a slave should look like. So Paul, under God's hand, he wrote these to aid this pastor in this church. This is how you should be living. Don't listen to the deceivers. They're telling you all kinds of things you should do, but be this way. These are more attitudes necessarily than actions. They've got to they be manifested in actions, but these actions matter because Jesus saved you. Jesus changed your, their souls and gave them new hearts to act godly. So he's changed them to live like this which means God gives you the ability to do that, okay? He doesn't, he doesn't call us to do something we can't do on our own. 
He gives us the ability and the, and the strength to do this. Our lives are changed by Christ to be better. You know, Peter was even having this same discussion with the, with the dispersed Christians, Christians in his letter. They were dispersed all over Asia and Europe after the persecution began in, in Israel and so in Palestine. And here's what he writes to the dispersed Christians in 1 Peter 1, verses 14 through 19. He says, as obedient children... Whoa, that's, that's, a big, that's a big word right there, obedient children. Listen, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. You know, we're in exile, right? We're not home yet. He says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Let this sink in. We are in ex exile here. This is not our home. And he's telling them, live in your exile as one who is ransomed by the blood of Jesus Christ. It makes a difference. It should be making a difference, and the world should see that. But it's hard. It's really hard sometimes. I don't know if you know who Zach Williams is. He's a contemporary Christian music artist. Um, he's got a song out, More Like Jesus, Less Like Me. Here's part of the song. I want, to, I want you to listen to this. Oh, I have days I lose the fight. Try my best, but just don't get it right. Where I talk a talk that I don't walk and miss the moments right before my eyes. Somebody with a hurt that I could have helped. Somebody with a hand that I could have held. When I just can't see past myself, Lord, help me be a little more like mercy, a little more like grace, a little more like kindness, goodness, love, and faith, a little more like patience, a little more like peace, a little more like Jesus, and a little less like me. There's more to that song, probably hear it on the radio anytime. A little more like Jesus, a little less like me. It's hard not to sing that song when I'm saying it. Do you have those days where you just can't get it right? You just can't get out of your own way? You're just, you can't see past yourself? We all do. But the truth is, we have to work at our conduct. The truth is, we have to work at these things to make them happen in our life. But the problem is we don't. We just assume it's going to happen. But we have to put out some effort. Now, I hope you understand most of these traits that are listed here. I'm not going to go through every one of them and explain them to you. I hope you understand. If you need, need to know, come see me. We'll talk about it. I'd love to tell you some more about them. I could talk about how men have failed at these traits or women are not being submissive. I could do that. I could point out how employees should act toward their company or their boss. I could speak about family life, about modesty, about integrity. But there's one thing, one thing that strings them all together in this list, and it's in a lot of lists in the Bible. Self-control, self-discipline, self-regulated, self-restrained. 
Do you see it there? It's in just about every one of the categories that we read or some form of it. If one fully understands that character trait, self-control, man, the others come a lot easier. Well, why, you say? <laughs> I'm glad you asked. You know, we don't like to discuss this one. We don't like to talk about this one. Self-control. It makes us focus on the one problem we all have. Self. <laughs> it makes us always, that's what this is going to focus on. But it would solve most of our problems if we controlled ourselves like Jesus. Do it like Jesus said. Deny yourself. Control yourself. For example now, and I'm going to go back through these real quick, but hang on. I'm in these two, okay? So I'm not just talking to you guys. I'm talking about myself too. Self-control, here's what it would do. It would prevent gluttony. It would prevent excess weight. It would prevent poor habits. It would prevent procrastination. Yeah, I moaned at that one too. It would prevent quick temper. It would prevent addictions. That's enough with the negative stuff. It would aid us. It would aid us to be more compassionate, more patient, more respectable, more sensible, more loving, more faithful, more persistent. It would aid us in that. It would aid us to be slow to speak and quick to listen, to act kindly, to be encouraging. It would aid us in that. It would aid us in teaching good and teaching what's pure. It would enhance our marriages, our relationships, our work ethic, our home life, our faithfulness to God. Self-control. The world needs a dose of that. And it can start in our own hearts because it's got to start in here. Self-control does not come from the outside. Self-control has to start right here. Every time, every January, the gym is covered with people trying to exercise some self-control. They're going to get in shape. They're going to lose some weight, blah, 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 whatever it is. And by February, the gym isn't as crowded anymore. So I wait and start mine to February. So I don't, no, I'm just kidding. Um, self-control. I hope you get the picture. It starts right here. You need to work on self-control and watch all the other areas in your life fall in place because when you're trying to control and discipline yourself and something is out of order, it's, it's, like, a, a, it's, like, it's like one of those bells that's not quite in tune. Oh, it's, it, it's obvious. Now, it is self-control, but it is not self-control alone. See, self-control is one of the fruit of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit wants to be involved in this. He wants to be engaged with you. So the Holy Spirit, when we wait, when we listen, when we follow his instructions, he'll help us be self-controlled. He'll help us hold our tongue. But it takes a decision point. You've got to decide every day, all the time, every minute sometimes. You've got to decide to be like Jesus and the Holy Spirit will aid you. My self-control goes out the window when I decide that I want to be in control. Does that make sense? My self-control goes out the window. My Holy Spirit self-control goes out the window when I want to be in control. But when I decide to let Jesus control me, when I decide to say, yes, you're right, Lord, that's what I should do. I shouldn't do that. I should do this. I've got a supernatural self-discipline. No, I don't have it all the time. But that's what happens to us. We decide we want to be in control. 
our godly conduct matters for now and into eternity. So we need to be a visible and vocal witness for Christ. And we start, it can start with self-control, but he, it starts with all these traits he's listed out here because it's a list. So conduct is one way our life shows Christ, but it feeds the ultimate purpose, which is God's message. That's what we should be holding high in esteem. The second point this morning is our godly impacts because of the way we live. Verse 1, Paul tells Timothy to proclaim consistent things consistent with sound teaching. So we're going to look at the so that's. There's a lot of so that's in Scripture in this particular passage. And just as an interpretation help for you when you're reading the Bible, when you see so that or therefore or the word for, it's giving you some kind of explanation for what they just said usually or what they're going to say next. So that, we're going to look at that. The reason to behave rightly is gospel validity, making it valid, validating it. So in verse 1, of chapter 2, he tells Titus to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. Consistent teaching keeps the truth solid. If you start wavering on what you believe and what you think, you, you begin to get all over the map, and it is not God's truth. Truth is vital. It's so vital to our life as a Christian. And then down in verse 5, verse 5, it, it says to the younger women, but it's talking to us, okay? To be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind, and in submission to their husbands, so that God's word will not be slandered. So that God's word will not be slandered? Wow, how's that happen? Well, he calls the women to conduct themselves in a godly way to prevent that. You know, back then... Many would try to devalue or deface the cause of Christ and the validity of Christ's resurrection and everything by pointing to people that were bad actors. It still goes on today. People do that today. But they would say, well, if that's a Christian, I don't, I don't see any difference. But that's what's supposed to happen. So that the word of God is not slandered. Then in verse 8, there's another so that. In verse 8, he's been talking to Titus. He says, your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. Whew, that is the goal, people. That is the goal, to, to live our lives in such a way that people can only accuse us of being nice people, good people, holy people, righteous people, gospel-believing and living people. That is what we want. They can't say anything bad about us. And if they say something bad about us, it'll probably be a lie. Boy, I, I would love for that to happen. In the public debates of that day, opponents would use erroneous teachings like what was going on in chapter 1 Paul was talking about. They would use the errors and the erroneous teachings and the actions, and they would use that against Jesus. They would use it as a point of contention, and they would think they were winning the battle or winning the argument. But Paul says, live in such a way so that you keep them silent. They have, and they'll actually be ashamed because they have nothing to say. They may, they may come to the public forum and try to debate you, but they don't really have a, a solid argument. I see it a lot today. There's a lot of videos out there of, of, of people arguing and debating. And there's times where the, the lost person or the non-believer, the atheist or the agnostic just can't say anything because they don't have an answer for a book of absolute truth. We call it apologetics today. 
That's what the, the term is used. It's basically arguing for the truth of God against the lies of the world. That's what apologetics is. There's lots of books out there on it if you want more information on it. But, but we need to be living in such a way that they're ashamed to even accuse us. Paul calls Titus to ensure that all his teaching, his instruction, adheres strictly to Jesus' teachings and instruction. Paul seeks to protect the truth from the deceptive lies that are out there. It's, it's a high priority for Paul, which is a high priority for God too. Because he wants Christ's name held in high esteem. If you go back to Acts chapter 5, it, it talks about they, 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 didn't, they didn't interfere with the Christians because they were holding them in high esteem because of the acts that were going on, the different things that were happening. Paul wants Christ to be lifted high. So should we in everything we do. And then verse 10, there's another so that. Or stealing, talking to the slaves, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. Think about this. The commands to the slaves that he's given, obey your boss, don't steal, be respectful, all those things he's given to the boss to the slaves to be toward their boss. He's given them the ways to behave. Imagine the power of that behavior in witnessing to a lost master. Every other slave is cantankerous. Every other slave is fighting the boss at every turn. Imagine a slave who follows Jesus Christ and behaves the way Paul has told him to behave. Imagine the powerful contentment of a slave to be fine where he is, what he's doing, his duties, and he's a slave in Jesus Christ, what does it say to the other slaves? I'm sure some of them are going to be like, well, you're just kissing up to the boss, right? You're just showing off. That'll take a while to get over, but push through it. Trust me, you have to push through it. And a lot of them did. But their contentment in Jesus Christ will testify to the slaves. One way or the other, they'll see truth played out. Whether they like it or not, it's up to them. And the masters will too. They'll be scratching their heads. What, what's wrong with you? Especially if you've been a pretty ornery slave before you got saved, which most of us probably have been. The kind of peace that they have as, as a follower of Christ in the slave situation, it speaks volumes to the world's constant noise about rights, about freedom, and about self. It says, I've given up myself, and my freedoms are in Christ. He who follows the Son is free. I don't have any rights because my Savior took those for me. That kind of living adorns the message of Christ. He uses that word specifically. We could use the word decorates. It's not, it's not that he's such a great example, but it's the fact that the message of God is beautiful to those who see it played out like that. A slave chooses to obey his master without any talk back. He chooses to not steal and pilfer from his boss because of Jesus Christ. He chooses to behave like that. It adorns and decorates the gospel. It gives it that eternal joy that we know is in it and shows it off to others. See, godly self-control shouts out to the world the truth of a regener of regeneration that a believer in Jesus Christ has. 
Amen? If we behave this way, godly self-control. Peter, Peter's still writing to the dispersed believers in 1 Peter chapter 2. He points out this major lesson about this. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. Glorify God. Glorify the message of God. Live so people do that. You know, many, many martyrs for Christ displayed a godly behavior when they were facing the death of their lives, their physical lives, from their persecutors. A lot of persecutors were won over by it. You can, you can look at the, the, the book, Fox's Book of Martyrs. It tells a lot of good stories in there. But the best story I, I have of this is the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas, on a missionary trip, they get beaten and thrown into the inner prison, if you will, the dark prison. They're beaten, but they're singing. Praise the Lord. Thank you for counting us worthy to receive this persecution. Only Jesus can do that to a heart, okay? Just so you know. So they're singing, and then in the middle of the night, in a, in a cell that's as dark as a cave without any light, okay? There, it's at night. They didn't, they didn't have cable TV in these, these prisons. It's the middle of the night. It's dark, and an earthquake happens. Earthquake happens, and all the doors of the prisons and the cells pop open. And the jailer's like, oh, I'm dead now. And he's about to kill himself, but no one left the building. No one left the jail cells. And as a result of that type of living, the jailer and his whole family got saved. They followed Jesus Christ and got baptized that very night. Boom. That's what's supposed to happen when we behave and act and share Jesus Christ with people, regardless of our situation. So we need to ask ourselves this morning, brothers and sisters, what kind of impact are your actions and words having for the kingdom of God? Are you a camouflage Christian just hiding? Or are you a flag-waving believer? You, you want people to know that you are... Now, you don't have to be obnoxious about it, okay? I'm not telling you to do that. But t- they need to know. Some of them may know by your actions. That's great. But let them hear your words. See, we can be good and we can be kind and we can be helpful and we can be generous. But do people know why we're that way? Because there's a lot of people out there that aren't believers in Jesus Christ that are that way. They're kind and good, and I hear it at funeral services and in seated obituaries a lot. We don't know their, their status, but they were a good person. But did, they, but did they ever say that they know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? Let's don't let that be said of us. The greatest difference between us and anyone else that's not saved is the selflessness. Selflessness. That does speak loudly to the lost. We're willing to do things for others. And as the church of Jesus Christ, we should strive to make Jesus known by our actions and our words. That should be our goal. We should be speaking him, talking about him, acting like him. Not a camouflage Christian. Let's live so that anybody in our community here only has good things to say about Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. I'm not talking about the church. Let's live so people say good things in this community about Jesus. That's our focus. The message of Jesus Christ is the reason we live here and stay here. It's not our reputation we're trying to improve. It's Jesus's. 
Let's live out and voice our faith in such a way that people know that Jesus is our Lord and our Master and our Savior. And even if they don't know Jesus and don't accept Jesus and they reject the gospel, they respect the name of Jesus. They, they esteem him. They have nothing bad to say and they are ashamed if they did say something bad. See, when we live our faith consistently, we will see godly impacts in our world. We will see it. We will see the changes. Paul calls the church to live and speak in a godly way so that Christ's message is heard, seen, lived out, and believed. It gains a hearing from lost people. To wrap this up, you know, we've all heard people badmouth the church or, or Christianity. There's a lot of bad examples out there, a lot of bad actors out there. Um, and usually it's because of sin. Sin has happened. The church tried to cover it up. The church tried to act like it didn't happen. The church may have even condoned it. I know it's happened. I know people have gone through that. But that's not Christianity because Christianity confesses and repents. That's the whole essence of our life. We confess and repent. We own our sins. And we seek to rectify the situations, the mistakes, the failings, the sin. So we must refuse to be defensive about what other people have done. We need to own it, the fact, if we've, if we've caused a problem. We don't need to be divisive or, or defensive or prideful, but to be humble to be gracious toward the complaints. If you make Jesus the focus, then it's easier to do than just trying to defend your own reputation. So as we come to our pastoral prayer time, let's pray as a church that we live our faith in such a way that people see Jesus and the lost see it and glorifies Christ. We're going to have a time of prayer, silent prayer. If you'd like to come to the front and pray, come on. Um, we'll be silent for a little while and then I'll close us out. So let's, let's pray.